0: What you're about to listen to is part two on a series about the Guadalcanal Campaign. I interviewed Dave Holland, a retired U.S. Marine who actually does tours on Guadalcanal to this very day. He has a YouTube channel, Guadalcanal Walking a Battlefield, and it is magnificent. I really hope you check it out. Dave is one of the greatest experts I've ever met on the subject of Guadalcanal. He has found multiple locations where medals of honor were earned during World War II. So please, if you have the time, go check out his YouTube channel and subscribe and like some videos. But without further ado, this is Guadalcanal Part 2. All right, uh, welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast week by week. I'm your dutiful host, Craig Watson, and I am joined yet again by Mr. Dave Holland. How are you doing today?
1: Yeah, not too bad, Craig. Thanks again for letting me um, come on your show. So it's, a, it's an honor and it's always good to talk about Guadalcanal.
0: And uh, for those who probably haven't seen the first episode, do you want to say just a little bit about yourself before we begin?
1: Uh, yes, I'm, I'm currently living in Australia. Well, I'm permanently living in Australia, but I'm originally from the U.S. Um, I was in U.S. Marines for eight years. Um, and due to my work with the Australian government, um, I got to live on Guadalcanal for a number of years. I left um, there recently in 2020. And... Um, Waiting to go back, but um, during my time there, I uh, walked the battlefields quite a lot, um, did a lot of research, and um, filmed my adventures and travel, so to speak, and I led a lot of tour groups when I was there. So, yeah, so I've been studying Guadalcanal for a number of years now.
0: And you have quite an interesting YouTube channel. I don't think many people do exactly what you do. You want to go and say a little bit more about that?
1: Oh, yes. Um, my YouTube channel is called Guadalcanal walking a battlefield also have a um a company i guess you could say facebook channel or facebook page called the same guadalcanal walking a battlefield so my videos I, was, I made for people who would never actually go to the battlefield itself or those who went on the week-long tour groups um, and didn't go off the beaten path so to speak and stay to the the i guess the itinerary and it allowed me to uh, drill down deep into some um little known uh, areas of the battlefield. So um, I made those for the people who would never ever get a chance to go there or, or very um, reluctantly and didn't hit the, the main spots. So also to my <clears throat> Facebook page, um, I probably updated every one or two days. Um, I try to put original source material on there, um, stuff that you probably never seen on other sites and a lot of then and now photos too. So a lot of good Guadalcanal information on there.
0: Excellent. And uh, just to tell members of the audience who may have not have seen the, uh, well, I guess we call it the first part of this, uh, two-parter, we'll call it. You had started to explain to us exactly what Operation Watchtower or Guadalcanal Campaign exactly was, why we even have a Guadalcanal Campaign. And uh, you went into great depth about the Battle of Alligator Creek and the Battle of Edson's Ridge. And that's pretty much where we left off. But there's a lot more to the story, as, uh, well, we both know. Hey everyone, I just wanted to let you know I now have a Patreon account found at www.patreon.com slash the Pacific War channel. Over there, you can find exclusive Patreon episodes and podcasts based on suggestions from patrons, and other benefits like early access to all of my content, live hangouts, your name in the end credits, and much, much more. So please go check it out. Yeah, there's a lot more to
1: the Guadalcanal campaign. I mean, it's a six-month-long campaign, and, you know, you can make a a mini, a lot of mini-series, sort of speak, out of it, you know, um, focusing on the air, land, and naval engagements, such a large um, aspect in the war. It played a a major part in the Pacific War. So um, today's, I'll mainly speak about the land campaign. Um, I will, I guess, touch base a little bit on the naval Parts of it when it's uh, very relevant to the land campaign, and you got to remember during all this I'm talking today, there was up in the air, there was ongoing um, air battles at the same time, so yeah, it had it it, had it all go out of canal. So basically, at uh, my last podcast or our last podcast, we ended up at the um, Battle of Bloody Ridge, which is uh, I think the date I think we ended up on the fifteenth of September. So that that last week or two in September's. Um, quite important in the Guadalcanal campaign for the Marines and for the Japanese. <clears throat> so for the Japanese, after the Battle of Bloody Ridge, um, the Japanese high command had an emergency meeting. And at the same time, the Japanese, uh, they were fighting on Guadalcanal. At the same time, they were fighting in Papua New Guinea um, over the Kokoda uh, track. And they had landed at Buna and Gona in the northeast part of um, uh, Papua New Guinea, and they were attacking over the, the track toward Port Moresby to take Port Moresby. So that was, um, that campaign was uh, full and, and running at the, the same time. So that was their main objective in, in the Southwest, uh, or sorry, the South Pacific was Port Moresby. So after um, Kawaguchi in the 35th uh, Brigade was defeated at Bloody Ridge, the Japanese high command decided, okay, what we'll do is we'll make Guadalcanal our main effort. So we can't run two efforts at the same time with PNG and Guadalcanal. So Guadalcanal will be our main effort. We will, um, orders was issued to the South Seas Detachment at the time. So they were the Japanese fighting on the Dakota track to cease all offensive operations, to basically hold in place and await for further reinforcements and limited amount of supply once Guadalcanal was handled. So all the um, all the uh, reinforcements and all the ma- major supply was sent into um, Guadalcanal. So that was a, a major Major turning point, especially for the Australians who were fighting in PNG, the Battle of Bloody Ridge. Um, it also, for the Marines, at the same time on September the 18th, was their first big resupply. I mean, That had limited resupplies um, by fast transports and some um, and some small tran- um, destroyers, so to speak, to unload limited amount of supplies. Because I think if you remember, we spoke about it in the last podcast. After um, the U.S. Navy pulled out on the 9th of August, uh, the Marines were left roughly for about two weeks with hardly any, any supply at all, just what they landed with. But this September the 18th arrival, um, uh, there's a lot of supplies on there. And also um, more importantly, was the 7th Marine Regiment or the 7th Marines as, as the Marines called them. So they arrived um, with a battery of uh, artillery and also a company of tanks. It was roughly about 4,000 Marines. These guys, the 7th Marines were uh, a part of the 1st Marine Division because the division has three regiments, three infantry regiments and an artillery regiment. The 7th Marines, at the beginning of the war, when the Japanese were attacking to the the South Pacific, um, like Fiji, Samoa, New Caledonia was, was, um, I guess, threatened. So what the Americans did, they sent a number of troops out to garrison these islands and one of the islands they garrisoned was Samoa. So they sent the 7th Marines out, so they fleshed out the regiment with some of the best NCOs and officers, uh, the best equipment they had at the time, um, attached a battery of, or sorry, a battalion of artillery to them and a company of tanks and sent them to Samoa. And they they were known as the 3rd Marine Provisional Brigade. So they thought they were gonna be the first ones to fight, but uh, ironically, um, the 1st Marine Division landed on the 7th of August in Guadalcanal without them. So some of the, the 7th Marines had some of the legends in the Marine Corps, especially legends of Guadalcanal later, uh, such as Chesty Puller, H.H. H. H. um Mitchell Page, John Batsillon, a lot of senior NCOs and officers in there. So they were they were considered like a, a very um, crack unit, so to speak. So Vandergriff, the... Um, Division commander was um, very happy and these guys are very well welcomed. So they arrived and that allowed Vandegrift to form a 360 degree perimeter where before, if you remember in, when we spoke about last podcast, they had a horseshoe shaped perimeter and he couldn't really um, man their Southern line, so to speak, because the, the main threats were to the front and to the flanks. And that's when the Japanese attacked on Bloody Ridge. But, um, So that allowed him to form a 360 degree, but also allowed um, 360 degree perimeter, but also allowed the Marines to have a fresh unit to conduct some limited offensive operations to try to go after the Japanese to push them back. Also at the same time, the Marines had a number of uh, promotions um, to some of their Lieutenant Colonel's to Colonel's, so they had an excess amount of Colonel's. So that allowed the um, division commander to get rid uh, some of his, I guess, less aggressive and older um, colonels, which he did, but in, in doing that, he uh, promoted some of his more younger and aggressive uh, leaders up to higher positions. And one in particular was Red Mike Edson, who was the um, Lieutenant Colonel before, or sorry, he was a Colonel before, but he was um, the um, battalion commander of the 1st Raider Battalion at Bloody Ridge. But he was very aggressive and um, he was given command of the 5th Marine Regiment. So once Vandergriff had these uh, units he could do some limited offensive with, he knew the remnants of the Japanese They attacked at Bloody Ridge and also some of the guys who were still there from the very beginning, some of the construction crews and some of the security elements were around the Matanakau River. So the Matanakau River is probably about, I'd say, five to eight miles. Depends on which part of uh, Henderson Field you you do the measurement from the five to eight miles from Henderson Field to the west. It's a metanical it was a major river. Um, you couldn't really ford it unless you forded a couple of points. But Vandergrift wanted the Japanese because they were concentrating in the area. He wanted them to be pushed way past them. And that way that would, um, I guess, limit the Japanese uh, advancements to Henderson Field. And, and push them way back, give the uh, Marines a bit of breathing room. So what did he wanted to do, he took two of his best battalions at the time, so he had to put the 1st Raider Battalion and the 1st Battalion at the, uh, the 7th Marines, and um, they were considered his some of his best troops. And the poor Raiders, I mean, they'd been fighting it to Tulagi and Tazaboko and had a major battle at Bloody Ridge. Uh, they, these guys didn't get much rest, so they put them in a, a coconut grove, they called them, gave them a, a few days' rest, then they put them back on the um, – uh, offensive sort of speak. So the first offensive they planned, um, they was take the first battalion, the 7th Marines, and their battalion commander was probably the most famous Marine of all time, and most decorated Marine of all time, uh Lewis Chesty Puller. Puller was known to be very in a very aggressive and a very and an upfront combat leader who would go after the enemy. So the plan was um on the 23rd, sorry, yeah, the 23rd 20- 23rd of September, um, the First Battalion and the Seventh Marines were going to go on the northern slopes of Mount Austin. Well, Mount Austin is not too far from, from Bloody Ridge, but they were going to go on the East-West Trail, uh, it was called. So the Japanese had an East-West Trail, and that was the trail they, they used to advance from, from a, the Matanakau River, and plus it was the, re- um, I guess, track that um, Kawaguchi and his unit had, had retreated from after Bloody Ridge. So the Marines didn't know exactly where they were at. So they sent Puller to do a reconnaissance and force on the east-west track heading to the west to a Matanical. At the same time, the first Marine Raiders, or the first Raider Battalion was going to go down the coastal track or the government track. So the government track was a, was a pre-war track that used to service all the coconut plantations. So it, as, as the name implies, it basically went on a coastal track. It was a, a little, um, um Copper Cart Road, as some of the Marines called it. And it wasn't a, a, a great sealed road or anything like that. It was just a dirt trail. Um, they could move up and down through. So they was going to, uh, the first raiders were going to walk, I guess, go kind of in parallel with the 1st Battalion, submarines. Marines. So the 1st Battalion, 7th Marines, on the 24th, they were moving. And they hit uh, uh, some Japanese pickets on the slopes. And they pushed their pickets back. And the... Um, the Japanese had a, a series of cooking fires and puller was about a third or fourth man back in the line. Cause he was leading from the front. And he, he bent down to sample some of the, the Japanese rice. And I think Craig, you mentioned before how the Japanese used to carry their the yeah. rations. Yeah. So, I'll so, mention yeah. to the
0: audience. Uh, it, it's a bit of an odd thing to think about because, you know, as they say, sometimes it's the, the, the unsexy part of uh, war is the logistics and, for the Japanese, compared to the uh, the American forces on the islands, the Americans had ready-to-eat rations, like uh, C rations or K rations. But for the Japanese, they had more or less, they would lug these bags of rice on their backs with various other things, like uh, some dried fruits and some fish, if they're lucky. But this meant that at nighttime or whenever they had to eat, they actually had to boil the rice. And this gave away your position, like you said, with the... Uh, it's like a smoke signal. And for snipers, this was a pretty crucial... Uh, Flaw in planning and it would lead to a lot of problems for the Japanese. Yeah.
1: Yeah, but and And um, yeah, you will see that later we'll talk about how uh, Guarda Canal became known as Starvation Island for the Japanese. Oh, yeah. So the rations, they didn't have a lot of rations even to, to start with. And um, I guess, very, I guess, had the perishable rations too, not like the Marines with the where they get to learn right.
0: from the Japanese accounts, you get to really learn about what you can eat when you can find just about nothing on an island.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, they ate the lizards and the and the spiders and the, and, and everything on Guadalcanal. I think you know, there's there's all kind of little animals that run around through there. Um, there's not many snakes on Guadalcanal. You know, you read some of these stories. Oh, you know the poisonous snakes on Guadalcanal. I mean, I was the there. The Japanese ate them all. <laughs> oh yeah, that's probably, probably what happened. They they exterminated them. They put them in extinction. There are some snakes on the island of Guadalcanal, but they're a little tree. Boas or something, they're like little boa snakes, little tiny ones, but not poisonous at all. I think in the Solomon Islands, there's only one variety of poisonous snakes, and it's a sea snake. Um, yeah, but there's, I think the the mosquitoes make up for it. I know that they're still there, swarms. But, um, but anyway, the puller had had bent down to sample some of this rice, and the Japanese had brought up some of their um machine guns at the time. So, what they the Marines had ran into? They ran into some of the elements of Colonel Oka, who was a Japanese regimental commander the 124th regiment and Colonel Oka you'll find out just he's always comes he's, he's coming in and out of the Guadalcanal campaign all the time you know and he actually lived through the Guadalcanal campaign but it's almost every fight the marines had for the next two or three months Oka was involved somehow and it wasn't in in his favor so to speak he was you know kind of drew the unlucky straw but anyway there was Oka's guys and they would um the ones that really wasn't engaged before so much in Bloody Ridge. I mean, they were in, involved in the diversionary attack. Um, I think I mentioned, um, but they, they didn't do much fighting, so they were fairly fresh. Anyway, they brought up a, a company. There those guys and set the machine guns up, then they started hitting um, first-hand seven Marines pretty hard. But in the ensuing firefight, the number of Marines died. They pushed the Japanese back, and they had about 25 casualties. So they stopped for the night. They pulled a radio back to division headquarters. He says, look, I've got a number of casualties. I need some stretchers. Um, division commander said, "Are you? can you continue on? He goes, yes, if you send me some more guys. So they sent the 2nd Battalion of the 5th Marines, which were under a captain at the time, with temporary command. So they sent two five, as they known it, known as, uh, up to Puller and his battalion with stretchers. So Puller sent back two rifle companies um, carrying his 25 wounded, which it would take two rifle companies to take them back because, once again, they, they didn't have any helicopters in those days, and there's no roads, no Jeeps, nothing like that, so they had to hand carry them over this tough terrain and also provide security. So it, it would took taking at least 300 guys to probably take those 25 back safely. So Puller still had one rifle company, and he had another battalion. So he continued on the next day. So they went down into the east-west track. It goes in a place called the Valley, and it goes to the um, east bank the of the Tannical River. Now, just a side note, uh, the valley was later known in another um, battle of Matanical. Um, There was a war correspondent named John Hershey, and he wrote a small book, about 60 pages, I think, 70 pages. It was called The Valley. or into the valley. I think it's maybe the valley, but it's John Hershey. And it's a good um, depiction of, of a marine rifle company. He's with them when they go under fire going down in that valley. So that's a quite interesting book if you knew one of your um listeners want to, to see that one it's called john hershey into the valley or the valley but anyway they moved down the valley they went down the um the um, east bank of the matanical and they passed a spot known as the one log bridge nippon bridge or the japanese had or uh, japanese one log bridge a nippon bridge it was known to the Marines. so it was a i've never seen a photo of it i know exactly where this site is i mean i've visited a number of times but um from this pictures of it, it was either one or, or potentially two logs together with a, with a handrail, very crude bridge over the, uh, I guess, a, um, a point of the Metanical that's easily crossed, um, a narrow part. But anyway, they, they passed it, didn't see any Japanese, and they went into the mouth of Metanical. And they were receiving a bit of a mortar fire at the time, but they tried to push across the mouth of Metanical and they sent one platoon over and they got hit pretty hard machine gun fire but division the radio back division thought that that um the marines had actually made it to the other side so they did a, um, a guy called twining who was the operation officer he did a, a plan on the fly so to speak and they sent so the raiders first raiders were, were getting on the scene at this time so they had two battalions there and they they um, decided to do a plan to, to eliminate these japanese because the marines intelligence you know, just like the Japanese intelligence failed a number of times in the campaign. So the Marines thought they only had about three, three to four hundred Japanese in that whole area. And they were very um, disorganized and, you know, they've been easily to be pushed over. But what the Marines didn't know, the Japanese had landed a fresh regiment, the fourth um, Japanese regiment, the 2nd Sendai Division. So they were fresh troops, you know, was probably about um, almost two thousand, two 000 to three thousand of them over there, fresh troops. So um, they sent Edson up, 5th Marine um, Regimental Commander, to take charge of the overall um, operation. So the plan was the next day they were going to take 2-5 under Puller and push across the mouth of the in a holding action to to pin the Japanese at the the mouth of the And at the same time, they were going to send the 1st Raider Battalion about 2,000 yards back down the... Bank of Montana and cross at the Japanese one log bridge, and then they were going to flank the the village. Then uh, they also had the two rifle companies that uh, the 1st Battalion 7 Maroons had sent back to the perimeter with those wounded. Um, They were going to throw them into some landing craft. and They were going to land uh, slightly west of Point Cruz, which is a little peninsula that, that juts out there. And they were going to come in from behind the Japanese. So they were going to pin the Japanese and destroy them. So that was the overall plan. So they started pushing um, platoons across the Mount Botanical, and they were getting hit pretty hard. Um, The Raiders were moving up to the One Law Bridge, but unknowns to the Marines, the night before the Japanese had pushed a reinforced uh, platoon across um, uh, the river, and they were um, in a nice tight defensive position. And if you go to that position to the day, you can see that's, you know, it's a good bottleneck, you know, it's straight up cliff on the left-hand side. And, you know, there's only about, I'd say less than hundred meters between the river and the, and the cliff face. So, and it's right before you get to the one law bridge. So they had a great position there. So the Raiders are moving up. And I think I just, I I did discuss him in the last um, episode, there's a guy called Ken Bailey. He was a major at that time. He was executive officer of the first, battalion, a Raider battalion. So Bailey was a very um, uh, instrumental leader. You know, they looked up to him, big fella, um, always led from the front. a lot of these uh, Marine officers, especially Raider officers did. So he's moving up, they started hitting, getting machine gun fire. So he's standing up trying to find out where the machine gun fire is coming from. And the first hand account said there was a machine gun burst that got him in the face and the chest and killed him instantly. So they're stuck there. Um, the, the battalion commander, who was Lieutenant Colonel um, Sam Griffin, he came up, seen his executive officer dead, became very um, mad, as you can imagine, and decided they needed to flank these Japanese, or tried to flank the Japanese. So he took a unit and tried to flank the Japanese. But, you know, I've, I've been to that spot, and you look at it, and the think there's no way in the world you get up these cliffs. So they tried, and uh, he ended up getting shot in the shoulder and severely wounded, and the attack stopped. So it's one of the few times the Raiders were ever stopped in the Pacific War was, was at that time there. But it, or, um, Bailey, I think I mentioned in the last episode, he'd earned a Medal of Honor. He, he, he was nominated and he later received a Medal of Honor posthumously. He, um, he didn't even know he ever received it for the Battle of Bloody Ridge less than two weeks earlier. So it was a major um, blow for the Raiders. Anyway, the Raiders were stuck there. 2-5 was stuck. So, at the same time, all this was occurring, it was a major Japanese air raid at the airfield. And the, the communications were, were distorted. So, just like the fog of war happens, a lot of um, engagements such as this, um, the, the division command thought the Marines were across the river, the raiders were across. So, that was, gave them the green light to send their amphibious uh, force, or the 17, around in the in run. So, they sent these guys in. They threw them on the boats real quick and they landed and when they landed, they landed at um, just west of Point Cruz. So any of you, you viewers ever been or sorry any of your listeners ever been to honey are is the capital city and that's you know built straight on this battlefield. and if they ever stay at the you know, the King Saul Hotel or the, um, a couple of other big hotels there now, it's basically on the same ground these guys landed and the um, um, like the police stations and all that is roughly where this area these guys fought over. So they landed, and they went up to the nearest high point, which is Hill 84. And they noticed they were going through bivouacs, and they were going through the Japanese bivouacs. they quickly evac- um, evacuated. was watching them. So they went up to the top. Executive officer it was a guy named um, Major Ortho Rogers. So he called his two company commanders together in a command group, and a mortar he hit right in the command group and killed him instantly and, and severely wounded another one. So the fight was on, the Japanese had them pinned down. So Puller um, was trying to tell Edson, he goes, look, my guys are there, we need to get them out. So Ed, Edson was trying to formulate a plan, trying to say, okay, let's see if we can work this out. And Puller, being Puller was a bit rash and says, no, you're not gonna leave my guys to to suffer or to die. So he, he jumped in a small boat and he went out to the USS Monson, which was a four stacker destroyer, which was providing and fire back at Kukum. So he jumps on that, gets, uh, a guy called Coast Guardman um, Douglas Monroe, who was the leader of the landing craft, and they went back. And um, in their haste, the Marines forgot the radios, so they're using the semi-four flags. They jumped, a guy called Raysbrook, Sergeant Raysbrook, he jumped up on the, um, the ridge under Japanese fire and started uh, doing a signal flagging to Puller, who was on the, on the destroyer. So they basically started laying down a quarter of fire, five inches in the left and right, to allow the Marines to evacuate. So Marines evacuated and Douglas Monroe, this is the only time um, uh, a U.S. Coast Guardman earned a Medal of Honor. And all the U.S. Coast Guards, and if you speak them to, to them to this day, they know about Monroe. Um, so Monroe, his front, his gunner and the lead, lead of his ship was hit and wounded. So he jumped on a machine gun in the bow of the boat in the front of the boat, and it was a Lewis gun. and at the time, the Marines were evacuating. One of the Marines, um, one of the landing craft was hung up on a sandbar. They were trying to, they hooked up some cables, trying to pull it off. So Monroe put his boat between that boat and the Japanese to provide and fire. And then when the boat was freed, Monroe was basically hitting the head with a machine gun fire. And um, he later died um, very shortly after that. And um, he was nominated in for, the, for the Medal of Honor. So the Marines evacuated, got everyone out. And it was the only time in the Guadalcanal campaign the Marines actually suffered a defeat and gave the Japanese a little bit of a, a I guess, a pep-up, sort of speak, and motivated. So that was known as the second battle of the Matanikau. So Marines moved back to the perimeter um, and kind of licked their wounds, but they knew there was a lot of Japanese there and they wanted to push them out. So... Um, this leads up to the third battle of the Metanicao. The third battle of Metanicao happened from the 7th to the 9th of October. So it was basically the same plan. Um, and, but this time, it was a bit more thought out with intelligence, more artillery support. Um, they were going to use five battalions, and it was the largest attack the Marines had in their campaign to that day. So, um, the Fifth Marines were going to, once again, they were going to attack at the mouth of Matanikau and hold the Japanese, and then there were three battalions of the Seventh Marines were going to cross singly cross this one log bridge. That 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 one log bridge got a lot of work out during the whole whole campaign. I tell you that, with the Japanese and Marines going back and forth across it, but they were going to move across, and then there was there's a series of three big ridges there in Guadalcanal, and One battalion was going down one ridge, second ridge, and third ridge. Each battalion was going to take a ridge. And then they would basically um, flank the the, um, Japanese and destroy them. So at the same time, the Japanese had decided to do a major offensive in Guadalcanal. So they started bringing in elements of the 2nd Japanese Sendai Division to, to be their main offensive force. So the elements of those guys started landing. So the Japanese knew that they were going to be bringing heavy artillery and tanks later in on in October. So what they wanted to do was form a beachhead on the east bank of the Metanical. And that would be a good jumping off point for their attack because they knew the only place you could bring tanks or tanks across Metanical is at that mouth, because that's where the coastal track, it went across the mouth of Metanical. Kind of like Alligator Creek, you know, the only place you could cross is a sandbar, you know, at certain times of the day, then you, know, you could cross them the sandbar and it was like a natural bridge. But that's the only place the Japanese could cross with the tanks there. And they knew if they could cross it and have a staging point, a semi-point on the other side of the river, then they could just shoot straight down the coastal track, straight into Henderson Field, basically, and give Marines a hard time. So they were very prepared to to hold the Metanical. So the Marines had that same idea. You know, they wanted to make sure the Japanese was way away from the Motanical. So the Marines beat the Japanese to the point, so to speak. Um, and they started their offensive. Now, when the Marines moved up, they thought the Japanese, all the Japanese, were on the uh, west bank of Botanical, But what the Japanese had done, they'd put a, a reinforced company um, across, and they'd dug in um, about four or five hundred yards from the mouth of Botanical. The so these Marine battalions, the Fifth Marines, hit these, hit these guys, and the fight was on. You know, it was a very close quarter. It was jungle, and they you know, they couldn't see each other, so they, you know, they were pinned down, and they were fighting pretty hard. Um, and the poor raiders were promised, okay, we're going to hold you back. The first, we got a big um, convoy coming in around October the 13th, and you'll be evacuated from the island, so you don't have to do any more fighting. But the overall command, once again, was Edson, and Edson loved his, his raiders. So he asked for a raider company to come up to assist, and then he asked for another company, then most of the raiders came up to assist in that, so the one last fight. So they were, they were pinned down. Um, fighting, fighting, and the the raiders had actually formed over the mouth of the The Japanese decided to do a breakout that night, and they overran one of the platoons of the raiders and killed like 12 raiders. And uh, most of the Japanese died. They didn't cross the the mouth, but um, yeah, the raiders got it pretty hard. Uh, The next morning, the three battalions of the 7th Marines, well, I won't say all 7th, you had two battalions of the 7th and the, the 2nd Marine Regiment, I think if you remember my last last episode, was part of the 2nd Marine Division, but because they didn't have the 7th Marine Regiment initially, the uh, Marine High Command gave the 1st Marine Division the 2nd Marines. So the 1st, 2nd Marines Regiment was actually the first ones to land. You know, and they were the first, you know, they were kind of the last ones to leave, so they, they got it kind of the, the raw end of the stick. But they were garrisoned Tulagi, which is about 20 miles away. They'd brought the, one of their battalions over. It a fresh battalion, so they had the 3rd Battalion the 2nd Marines involved in this attack. <clears throat> it was under a, a fellow named uh, Colonel Whaling, Bill Whaling, and um, a little side note here about Whaling. Whaling had formed something called the Whaling Group. It was a good idea. So Whaling was in his, his history, you know, he'd fought in, in the Great War, the first World War I, or World War I as a, as a Marine enlisted him. Um he, he did quite well there. And he'd fought through the uh, banana wars in the 20s and 30s in, the, in Haiti, and Nicaragua. So he was very, um, very experienced woodsman, um, outdoorsman. He was Olympic shooter. I forget which Olympics he was in. Um, so what he had, had done, too, he was executive officer of the Fifth Marines, and he had an idea. He went to division commander and uh, chief of staff, and he said, look, that was the days before you had Marine reconnaissance or scout snipers and things like that. So they were just doing their own scouting from the infantry platoon. So he said, look, this is jungle. We need some, need some good scouts and, you know, it'd be worth the wait and go. So can I just, um, I guess go through the battalions and ask them for anyone would previous shooting experience, um, hunt hunters and woodsmen, and I can put them in a unit give them some, um, some more training and use them as a scouts and snipers for the for the um, division, and they said that's a good idea. So they he started um, doing that, and they were called the whaling group. And what he would also do, he'd, he'd rotate these guys back to the normal unit so they just share their experience. So it was a good idea. And later in, in the war, um, the marines formed their scout snipers and reconnaissance units. So that was a good, good, um, good little, um, I guess, origin from it. But anyway, whaling was in charge of the whaling group, which is his scout snipers in the 3rd Battalion, 2nd Marines. He had um, the 1st Battalion, 7th Marines under Puller, who just had a hard time, you know, two weeks earlier. And then the 2nd Battalion of the 7th Marines under another interesting fellow um, called H.H. Hanikin. You know, Guadalcanal is like the who's who, uh, you know, of, of, the, of the U.S. Marine Corps in World War II. You know, all the legends, you know, was <laughs> all together in, all yeah, the in the first team. Down. Yeah,
0: yeah it's it's you think about it, cool. you
1: know. If through the war, you know they they spread out and went to the other divisions, but you had them all in one little one unit, so to speak, the first Marine Division. It was the who's who if you look back on it. But um, Hannigan had earned the Medal of Honor. I think he was in Haiti, and he had. It's a good story. If you if you, any of you listeners want to look him up, he'd earned the Medal of Honor. He dressed up like the um, local guerrilla, like a guerrilla, penetrated the guerrilla leader's camp, and him and another guy assassinated or killed the guerrilla leader and ended the ended the kind of insurrection at that stage. And then the guerrilla loser a replacement and he um, came in and he ended up killing him later. Then I think he went to Nicaragua and there's a guerrilla leader, and he infiltrated his camp there and um, captured him. So <laughs> he was a pretty, pretty, pretty um, capable fellow. He earned a battlefield commission, but anyway, it's a bit of a side note. But anyway, he had those three, three units and three good commanders. So they moved out crossed, and they were going down the ridges um, and they had the Japanese pen so they started um, really uh, getting into the Japanese and pullers actually battalion called a Japanese um, battalion of the fourth Japanese regiment a fresh one in a in place called the ravine so we go to Honorari to this day where the parliament house is if you go not too far from the parliament house it's a deep ravine and and the coral ridges and and Guadalcanal to this day. If you see them, all the ridges are fairly barren due to the coral I told, I was towed. And then in the ravines are uh, thick jungle. So obviously that's in the, with the river or the creeks and stuff going through them. So it's a good place to build. White. The Japanese were called in there and, and Puller started um, calling in his uh, mortar fire on both ends and he had a Japanese trapped and he had a 75 millimeter howitzers. Artillery support was was pinning these Japanese too. And then the Japanese, if you go to this ravine, to the state straight up and down. So they're trying to get out on the other side, and the machine guns um, started taking the Japanese out. And I think Puller, one of his commanders, said it was a, a machine made for extermination. That was what that whole whole episode was. So they got a bit of a payback from you know two weeks earlier. And um, at this time, uh, the reports, the Marine High Command was receiving reports that Japanese were coming in force. You know, I, I think at the time, I mean, I haven't verified it, but I think they had um, access to, to MAGIC, which is the, you know, the code breaker, naval, Japanese naval code breaking. I think there was some, they were getting some intel basically saying that, look, the Japanese are coming in with a lot of reinforcements. So they thought they're going to hit the, the, the perimeter, you know, which was lightly manned. So they were, they were given an order to withdraw back to the perimeter. But they drew back to the perimeter. In the meantime, I think they were accredited with killing like six or 700 Japanese um and which put a big um almost decimated whole fourth japanese regiment and it, it knocked the japanese back a bit so they moved back into the perimeter once again so um you got anything you want to add greg i mean i've been yapping away here
0: yeah, yeah of course sorry i just was listening a tune in. um okay so around the i think the ninth
1: all right around roughly around this same time The Japanese um, 17th Army commander landed, Hayataki, Lieutenant General Hayataki. He landed and was taking um, personal command of Guadalcanal campaign. So once again, that's another, um, I guess another indication how the Japanese were taking this very, very seriously. Um, So he landed with the 17th Army. You you would know that uh, I think the Japanese, the armies, we say army, it's not like the Western armies at the time. It was more like a core size, I think. Um, their armies were like two two or three divisions. Yeah. Which, you know, in the Western armies at that time, a, a corps was two or three divisions. But anyway, um, Hayataki landed and he formed his um, headquarters at Kukumbona, and that was the, the area where he'd formed. Um, so the Japanese had a major plan going at the time, and they were going to, you know, with air, sea, and land, you know, they were really going to knock these, these Americans off Guadalcanal. So, you know, Yamamoto, uh, the naval commander, was involved. Um, massive amount of air was coming to Rabaul, or Rabaul as some people call it. Uh, they were getting a lot of reinforcements. Because you can remember these, the Henderson Field was getting hit almost every day with air raids. Um, normally around 11 or 12 o'clock, the Marines called it Tojo time. That's, that's how long it took them to fly from Rabaul. To hit it, and then you know, I could go off sidetrack and talk about the coast watchers, and you know, and how the Marine Wildcats would take forty-five minutes to get up to twenty thousand feet, and yeah, it was, it's good, it's good, um, good study about all that. But um, try not to get sidetracked here. So the Japanese plan was to before they were landing all their troops, mainly in fast destroyers, the Japanese called rat runs. And the Marines called them Tokyo Express down the slot there in Solomon Islands. The Japanese said, well, we've got these transports so we've got, you know, tanks and heavy artillery and we can't put them on destroyers. So we need to put them on these transports. But they're, they're a bit slow. So the Japanese ruled the night, so to speak, with their naval, naval support and the Marines ruled the day with their air support from Henderson Field. So they knew that they, they couldn't get those transports in at night and get them out the next day or, or vice versa before the Marines air could take them out. So they had to neutralize Henderson Field. So the Japanese Naval High Command come up with a plan. They said, okay, what we'll do is we'll send their battleships down um, and we'll just just obliterate their field with, with just naval um, bombardment. Because you got to remember, the, the Marines were getting hit almost every night by naval bombardment. Because when the Japanese would do their rat runs or um, supply runs with these fast destroyers. Those fast destroyers would drop off. And then on the way out, they'd fire a few rounds into the perimeter, you know, with their five inch rounds. So the Marines getting hit every night with that. So they're getting kind of used to it. So the plan was um, Yamamoto formed the largest naval group um, since Midway. They were going to push out, <clears throat> excuse me, they were going to push out and then they were going to bombard henderson field neutralize it then they would allow them to unload their transports with um without being harassed in the day they were going to remain off and try to draw the american carriers out because once they they were going to do a major attack and hopefully draw the american carriers out and finish the american american carriers once and for all
0: because it was yeah momoto's Basically, his obsession was to have the decisive naval battle, and he was looking for it this entire time. And yeah,
1: I guess it, it potentially gave him the opportunity because they knew the American carriage had been in the area, you know, and they thought, well, we can draw them out because they're, <clears throat> they're waiting on us. So the plan was to land the second division in full, um, heavy artillery, tanks, and some more of the elements of the 38th Japanese division they were going to land. And the plan was. They were going to take their tanks, it was a tank company, about 12 tanks, and supported by um, a regiment. And they were going to attack starting on the 22nd of October. And they were going to attack across the mouth of the because at that time the Marines had, had pushed forward two battalions to hold the mouth of the to keep the Japanese off balance. So they were going to pin those Marine battalions there, take another Japanese regiment. Attack it to uh, cross at the one log bridge because the Marines, the two far deployed battalions, there's a ridge called Kola Ridge to this day. Their their flank was refused, so to speak. It was open. So they were going to cut those two battalions off. It was kind of like a reverse plan that the Marines had done in the second or the third battle of and The Japanese is going to do it reverse. But at the same time, <clears throat> uh, Murayama, which is the division commander of the second division, he had ordered his um, his engineers to start from Kukumbona, which was the 17th army's headquarters and go south to Southeast and cut a 15 mile um, road. They call it a road it's more of a trail called a Murray trail. And it was going to go around Mount Austin, go to the um, miles South of the perimeter of the Marine perimeter, and then come straight up and attack over bloody Ridge. They're just going to replicate their, their um, attack they did on the um, September with bloody Ridge. So it was a good plan, you know, and um, they were going to pin the Marines, and, you know, they knew that southern flank would be lightly held and they're going to have a whole division, well, about 7,000 Japanese concentrated straight over the ridge, straight into the airfield. So it was a good plan. So they initiated it, they started doing the air raids, and then the night of the 13th, or the day I'll, I'll backtrack, on the 13th of October, the Marines received another big resupply and they also the first time the u.s army because the u.s army had been you know the marines have been thinking the u.s army is going to relieve them from almost week one because the marines are going to land their assault troops they land take the island you know take the beach and then the, the army is going to come garrison but you know the army never came for a number of reasons so the first u.s army unit started arriving it was the 164th infantry regiment and these guys were a national guard unit from the dakotas I think maybe Wisconsin too, but definitely from the Dakotas, North and South Dakota, big raw bone farm boys, as they were described as. And um, they turned out to be very, very good, good unit, but they'd landed on you know, the 13th October. A, and then the Raiders left on the same transports, you know, they'd, they'd, they'd done their time in hell, so to speak. And, and it served the time and they're on the way out. I think there were only uh, 800 of them landed. And there were about 200 effective at the end. They suffered a lot of casualties. Um, So they had landed on the 13th of October. So that night, the two Japanese battleships had um, come into the – off Iron Bottom Sound. I think – I have to double-check, but I think 15 kilometers away, they started pounding the perimeter with 14-inch naval rounds. So in a short time, they fired almost a 1,000 naval rounds.
0: It was incredible. I think you had to – yeah yeah was, i think you
1: uh, had the exact count like 900 and 37 almost 937
0: mm-hmm. 14 inch shells and they run they ran out of their high explosive shells they ended up having to use the uh the armor piercing that's used for shooting at ships in the end to just keep putting the damage down it must have been absolutely terrifying i've read accounts from uh the marines that were there and it was the stuff of nightmares
1: oh yeah i mean uh um to this day i've well, they don't find too many 14 inches, but um, there's one in the, um, the police, their EOD, you know, their explosive disposal guys. They have a, like a little outdoor museum. They've got a 14 inch round fired that night. there. It was an armor piercing one too. and they've, they've cut it in half where well, you can see it, but yeah, it's an armor piercing one. But you can imagine armor piercing ones firing a, a shell the same size of a VW a bug, you know, a, a car. You know, if that landed beside you, it didn't matter if it exploded or not. That would, that would do some damage to you, especially if you, you know, hit your tent, so to speak. But yeah, you know, and then, and basically over that night, they fired all those rounds. And that was, and I think we discussed it before. Uh, I can't think of any other place, any other time that Allied soldiers in the whole World War II was um, underwent this intense, intensive naval um, shelling because you know they, they did it this night and they did it the next two nights too with eight inch and five inches. You know, they fired over a thousand eight, eight inch rounds and five inches round the next night. And I think the five inches and they hit them. So three nights in a row, they got smashed, literally smashed pretty hard. But basically what it is the next day, most of the air, um, Cactus Air Force as it was called, was destroyed. I mean, they had a few um, planes they could put up in the air, but a lot of the air, avgas or aviation fuel was gone. You know, luckily, they'd spread out some of their avgas and they had enough to, to fly a few missions. But they had a basically decimated them so much. The Japanese, the next day, the Marines said they, they could see the Japanese transports and they could see them offloading in, in full daylight. And they couldn't do anything about it. It was so frustrating for them.
0: Yeah, a lot of them could watch. Uh, they had good vantage points to see the entire thing. And they called it a, a fast run for the Japanese. Yeah. You know, it would be one I of those few times few times they'd be able to actually unload but they they still in the end they would only be able to unload about two-thirds of their uh, supplies. they got all the men but not all the supplies.
1: Yeah because the Marines and the um, yeah the Marines did put a few planes up and they were still harassing them. I mean there's you know once again that's a side side track where you talk about how you know how Marines cannibalize some of the planes and you know they had a Franken plane or something like that they caught it and yeah it was just some great stories there with the air, air campaign alone. Have, but, yeah. yeah, I think they, yeah, Franken plane or Frankenstein plane or something. They just off well, bits and pieces of a plane, and put it together and it did some damage. Right. It's a good story. Um, so they're, they that allowed the, them to offload most of their, especially all their, um, heavy artillery. So they were unloading a lot of a large number of um, 150 millimeter and 100 millimeter heavy artillery. You know, now, I'll speak about the heavy artillery right now. They were, the Marines called them, and the Army called them pistol Pete. Now, some accounts you read, some guys think Pistol Pete was a singular um, cannon, but it wasn't. It was the name given to any artillery, big artillery round that landed in Henderson Field or landed amongst the Marines. I mean, it, well, when you say big artillery round, at one stage, 75-millimeter uh, rounds were hitting them around the Marines, and they said, oh, that's Pistol Pete, you know, but that was the name synonymous for the, the Japanese heavy artillery. So Japanese heavy artillery landed, in in, in 150 mils, from Kukumbona, where the Japanese headquarters was, could strike Henderson Field. The Marines um, couldn't counter battery fire because they had nothing that large to, to counter battery fire. They only had the 105-millimeter howitzers. I mean, the 11th Marine Regiment is the, is the Artillery Regiment. Um, they had five battalions, but the 5th the Battalion was the 155-millimeter, but it was left in New Zealand uh, when the Marines left to, to, to land on Guadalcanal because they didn't have enough um, shipping to take it and its prime movers. So I think the 155s of the Army and the U.S. Marines on the land in late October, early November. So, you know, they were, they started smashing Henderson Field, too, um, once they got set up. And then, um, so the plan was you had these guys, so they decimated, they unloaded, and they started moving through the jungle. So once again, the Japanese, the, the terrain beat the Japanese. Um, Uh, They underestimated the the terrain. She had seven thousand guys moving through that thick jungle, and you know, to this day, if you go in there, you think, "How in the world could they do it?" And they're carrying all their artillery too. You know, each Japanese soldier had to carry one seventy-five millimeter round.
0: Well, they they carried they carried it for a while, but a lot of them actually ended up having not to carry it.
1: Oh yeah, I mean that's that's you know that's kind of um, you could see why they did it. Um, to this day, if you go in a Murriama track or remnants of the trail, you can still find 75 millimeters laying or rounds laying in the jungle, on fire, where you can see some private just threw it on his backpack. You know, you know I remember. Yeah, go ahead. when
0: you uh, when you read a lot of the accounts from the Japanese side, whether it's Guadalcanal or some of the other islands, there's um, it's kind of a theme about it's usually food, it's it's usually starvation that you hear. But another thing that I heard, particularly when it came to this account, when they were carrying the artillery. It's the weight of the equipment the Japanese had. And I don't know if a lot of the viewers uh, listeners know it's a little bit ironic, but if you look at all the armies in world war two, the Japanese were some of the smaller guys, but they had the heaviest equipment. They had the largest bayonets, the heaviest rifle. They had the heaviest ration pack. And then these guys who had to bring this artillery, the pieces of the artillery, they basically, from the accounts I read a lot of them, they couldn't do it. They, after a few, uh, Days marching, they actually had to give it up. So it's yeah, um, yeah. it's just it's another one of those small little details that kind of like Japanese logistics was not uh, not up to par.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've carried in you know, those the same jungles. I've been on parts of the Murramah track, and I've been in jungles elsewhere in the world. But I'm telling you, you, you know, you carrying just a little bit of weight, and you can feel it very quickly. And and they had a lot of bulky items too. I mean, you know, they, they're just stripping apart a whole you know. 70 millimeter howitzer and a 75 millimeter howitzer just amazing what they, they they thought they could achieve but just the whole mentality of them thinking they could do it it's you know you just got to tell your hats off to them for the it's,
0: you know, determination it's, it's, it's the old idea that's insane you know, well the officers in the japanese military used to tell that all the men that while it you know the while the technology was against them, it was the spirit of the the, the Japanese spirit that would win the day in the end. Yeah. It was you know the tenacity and uh, well yeah the kudos, kudos to them for for fighting like that. But uh, <laughs> well, the logistics did pan out. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, like I said, logistics on Guadalcanal, both both forces are fighting at the end of the logistic trail. I mean, it's a great study in the, in the in logistics. You know, the logistics win the win the wars. You know, win campaigns. Yeah. But but these guys moved through the jungle and they underestimated the jungle. Um, Murayama, the division commander, delayed his attack. It was supposed to go on the 22nd. He delayed it, you know, to the 23rd. So the guys at the mouth of the out of the tanks. They did a probing attack at one stage with a couple of tanks. And they said, this is what the Marines had over there. Then they pulled them back. So they were getting ready. But the Marines on that line, you know, like I said, they had two battalions and a third battalion of the 1st Marine Regiment and a third battalion of the, of the 7th Marine Regiment. So they were dug in there. And they also had their special weapons, like the 37 millimeters. They had 75-millimeter um, howitzers on um, half tracks, the M3 half tracks. So they've, they've become very, um, very important. And then more importantly, they had four battalions of artillery, with 75 millimeters and the 105 millimeters, registered in to the other side of that river. And I read where each gun was given a 50-yard path. I said, this is your, you're, you're going to file on this 50 yard strip up and down, up and down. That was all registered, ready to go. So they were, they were waiting for the Japanese because they knew that was, that's where the Marines stopped, where the Japanese were going to hit, hit from. So the Japanese are trying to move through the thick jungle. Marines had no clue they're coming in from the South. You know, they had their, their local scouts, which is Solomon Island scouts. They were very good guys. Uh, they, they wouldn't get any intel. Uh, they wouldn't picking them up on the um, the normal scouts uh, whaling scouts snipers wouldn't picking them up air cover wouldn't picking them up because the japanese were going through the thick jungle and way to the south would no one expect them to be there so what the marines did they had the seventh marines um, on that line and um they had the first battalion seven marines puller once again and they had hannick two seven they were manning that line that line Marines had a good line there. I mean, you can go there to this day and still see all the, the bunker holes and the barbed wire. It's all still there. Um, unfortunately, farming and, and the encroachment, modern uh, encroachment, has taken up a lot of it, but a lot of it's still there. But they dug in quite a bit. Now, the coconut log bunkers or coconut logs on the overhead. Um, like, if you ever see the, the HBO series, the Pacific, uh, Pacific with, with Barcelona, and that's the area where Barcelona was at. Those, those, I guess for the movie or the series, I made it with the, you know, wasn't covered, so you, I guess you could see the actors, but they were generally covered um, log bunkers, and they'd cut firing lines in the jungle, and they had like uh, four foot um, high barbed wire, thick barbed wire, double barbed wire strands in there, um, so it was a great defensive position. They only could see, I think Barcelona said he could see thirty it was 30 feet from the barbed wire line. He could see about another 20 yards on the other side. So they had limited amount of fire. What the Marines would do, they'd cut firing lines. So they'd cut these firing lines at angles, knowing that's a path of least resistance. And the, you know, the Japanese infiltration techniques, you know, they go through the thick jungle and, you know, even if you're in a thick jungle, you're going to hit a path of least resistance, you're going to take it. So they were trying to lure them in those firing lines and then, you know, basically killing lanes with a machine gun. <clears throat> but a little side note there, those, Bunkers, um, almost every bunker had a machine gun in. You think, how many machine guns uh, does a battalion write? And how, how do they get all these machine guns? But what the accounts stated that uh, they weren't that far from the bone yard, which is the, you know, the I guess the uh, aircraft crash yard where they put all the wrecked aircraft from fighter one in Henderson field. So they were scavenging 50 cal and 30 cal machine guns off those planes and putting them in their bunkers. You know, you've got a you got a young Marine private with a you know, bolt action 1903 Springfield rifle, and he's sitting in his bunker. And then his his good buddy or his mate comes back with a 30 cal machine gun. He's going, Oh, where'd you get that from? He goes, Oh, I just go back there to that wrecked planes and grab your machine gun. You, you know, of course he's gonna run back and get him a machine gun too. So you can see almost every bunker had a machine gun They had a heaps of ammunition. And then um, Vandegrift Division Commander actually visited there when he said, This is a machine gunner's paradise. So the Marines are waiting on him. But saying that, they didn't expect an attack from the south. So what Vandegriff did, he pulled Hanikin's battalion, which was manning basically Bloody Ridge, he pulled him off the ridge. And he sent them on the ridge all up to the Metanicao. Because I remember before I said you had two Marine battalions up front on the Metanicao, and their flank was exposed on the ridge. So they knew the Japanese um, could basically flank those two battalions. So they put Hanikin's battalion up on that ridge. To protect them, so they put three battalions up front. But what that did, though, it left that southern line with Puller's battalion. He had to take over two battalion front, so he had to cover 2,500 yards. You know, and he had the 164th U.S. Army tied into his left, um, but still, um, there were he only had 500 guys to cover those. So he had 500 guys spread out over 2,500 yards, ready to accept. Roughly six to seven thousand Japanese concentrated attack, you know, in the 2nd Sendai send-out divisions, one of the best divisions I had. So, you know, the Marines are getting set up for a, a major fall here. But the attack was delayed. The word got back to the 23rd. Okay, delayed it one day. And um, uh, we were almost in the jungle. He said, I can't make it on the 23rd to be the 24th. But once again, there's always someone that don't get the word. And in this case, it was the Japanese general and a, a Matanikau. So he didn't get the word, so he attacked with his tanks. And they started out 12 tanks, or sorry, nine tanks. They attacked with nine tanks across in a row, like ducks in a row, across the mouth of Matanikau. There's some famous photos. Um, you still see those nine tanks in a row on Guadalcanal. So they started out... <clears throat> And the Marines started um, hitting them pretty hard with 37-millimeter anti-tank fire and a 75-millimeter off the half-tracks. Half at the same time, the infantry supporting those tanks started out in their assembly areas, and the Marines started landing all, all their artillery, pre-registered artillery. So it was reported they uh, fired over 6,000 rounds in a small area. They basically decimated. Oh,
0: my God. Yeah.
1: Yeah, they basically decimated the Japanese in their tracks. And the tracks, a whole company is being wiped out in the similar area before you even get to the the attack points or attack line. And um, one of the Marine veterans uh, of the Great War, World War One, said, "Look, place looked like you know, the Argonne or the Somme or something like. It looked like a World War One battlefield. You know, all the all the craters there and everything. So basically, wiped. It just almost wiped a whole regiment. not wiped them out, but just destroyed their their um their attack before it even started." And the tanks were all taken out, mainly by the 37 millimeters. One tank made it to the other bank and there was one Marine private that stuck a hand grenade in the track and blew, you know, stopped it. Then a 75 millimeter took it out. So basically that their attack was decimated. Um, Colonel Oka was gonna lead the flanking attack across the bridge and on the ridge. And so Oka's back in there again, but once again, he was delayed, so he didn't attack that night. So they couldn't even coordinate between those two forces that was operating together. And so they were. that attack stopped. The, the guys on the south haven't attacked yet. So on the night of 24th, 25th, the southern group attacked. So this is going to be known as the Battle of Henderson Field. So they attacked. And luckily for the Marines, the Japanese uh, could only attack in company strength because to this day that jungle is super thick. I mean, I've walked that jungle I don't know how many times. I've probably been in that jungle more than anyone other than a local that I can think of. Um, the researching um, those bunkers and, and uh, that line. And there was two trails that Japanese used because they took the path of least resistance. One of the trails <clears throat> was in the middle of Sea Company, and that's where the um, famous Marine John Basalone comes in. So Basalone was a heavy machine gun sergeant, section leader. He had four heavy machine guns with a nineteen nineteen water cool or sorry, nineteen seventeen water cooled machine gun. He had two bunkers. And um, I won't get into too much detail of his actions, but if you go to my, um, a lot of these I've been talking about, if you go to my you know, YouTube site, on the Guadalcanal Walking on the Battlefield, you'll, you'll see these sites, how they look today. And I'm, I'm basically giving you a tour of, of these sites.
0: And please do check out his YouTube channel, everybody. It's amazing seeing your episodes. And it, it's one thing to talk about these battles and see the photos. Well, when when there are photos, mind you. But for you to actually go to the physical location and show what it looks like today, especially these remote locations that many people have never seen in their lives, it's very interesting.
1: Yeah, like I said at the very beginning, not like some guys who go the week-long tours there um, never go off the beaten track, so to speak. Uh, they go to the itinerary. But yeah, Barcelona, the Medal of Honor site's there. So, but he was covering, he was covering that on um, uh, important trail. And he's also providing um, covering fire for a 37-millimeter anti-tank gun. And they had a, a gate. No, I can't pronounce it. Um, it's a French word, Cher de phrase or something. It's like a, the, the, the old, you know, you got the log in the middle with the spikes that stick out, wow. you know, and they had that. It looked like something like a U.S. Civil War photo. You know, in U.S. Civil War, you say the shared de phrase or something like that, the French word. It has a... The spike sticking out on a log, oh, and man, it's,
0: it's killing me. Someone who actually speaks French, right? Yeah, I'm not
1: sure. <laughs> oh, that's probably I butchered that French. I have no idea, but I think that's that's pronounced. But anyway, um, they had that, and there was there was a gate <clears throat> they would allow. Anyway, they were covering that. and um, it was only like two weeks ago. I got to speak to a 97 year old Marine veteran, which I didn't think anyone was still alive, especially from that unit. Um, who's who switched on? Is just like, he remembers it like it was yesterday. And as more you speak to him, the more he starts to remember. And he was one of the gunners of that thirty-seven millimeter gun. And it's just quite amazing. It is incredible in the stories he's telling. I mean, he's just—you get once I started speaking to him, I know exactly he was—he was there, and he was, you know, what he was describing. And he's giving me some good info, and he's—he's a good guy. So if you go to my uh, Guadalcanal Facebook site, you'll see him. He's George Mason, and um. Yeah, yeah, and I've got actually a map made by one of the veterans after the battle, and show all the gun crews, and his name's on there, George Mason's gun crew, and he tells some great stories, and he's he only 17 years old.
0: It's a really he's rare a experience top. to uh, to speak to anyone who survived these events. I, I had a I had a very unique. Well, I mean, this is going really off of, off on a tangent. I had yeah, a that's right. I had a unique experience that was a once in a lifetime, and uh, I found it was a little. Tr- it it was a little awkward. Uh, I, my my family's from well the United Kingdom. Uh, they yes. came over after the war. Uh, everybody, almost everybody, eighty percent of my family died in the in the Blitz in London. Mm. And um, I ended up dating a, a German girl for a while, and I, I spent some time in Germany. And uh, well, her grandfather lives out kind of in the the boonies of an area called Dusseldorf. And we visited one time, and you know she knew I was. Uh, this is a long time ago. I was very young. She knew I was a World War II buff. And, you know, she asked her grandfather if he wanted to tell what was uh, his story of what he had seen. And uh, basically what he told me, he was about 15 or 16 years old. He was in Hitler's youth and he was on the eastern front. And the last, uh, the last hurrah, the Gutterdammerung when the uh, Russians were Hmm. coming into Berlin. And he he had to run from the eastern part of Germany all the way to the west to try and run and flee to the Americans to surrender. (laughs) <laughs> and, uh, I've never told the story, but I guess maybe one day on my personal YouTube channel, if, uh, I ask her if I can share it, it's, uh, horrowing, <laughs>
1: horrowing to bet. say the least. Yeah. And then actually a, a good account to, to listen to a lot of people be interested in that. Hmm. Um, okay. I'm trying to think. Oh, we're, okay. We're, we're at Henderson field. Okay. We're at Barcelona. Okay. Um, so the Japanese, um, took the path to least resistance. So they started hitting the Marine lines and, um, And luckily for the Marines, the Japanese were attacking piecemeal. One Japanese regiment, 230th Regiment, and these are the same guys involved in, um, because remember the 38th Division was involved in Hong Kong and in Timor and in Java. So these guys were veterans. Um, But one of the the regiment, 230th Regiment, they were attached to the 2nd. Just to show you how disorientating that thick jungle is at night, instead of attacking, you know, um, south to north, they went parallel. They were parallel in the marine lines and they were they were totally flipped around and they were moving out way to the to the east. So they, that whole regiment wouldn't evolve into attack at all over two nights. You know, they just got so sidetracked. So the Japanese hit with this, it was 16th and 29th regiment. So they attacked and the Marines were stopping them they were holding them quite hard. And artillery the Marines had artillery support. So they were like really um stopping the Japanese in their attacks just like um, the veteran told me too, he said they were just, he he couldn't stop them. You had to kill them. He said, you have to kill these guys to stop them. They were just running massive into our guns. There was no stopping them. Um, Now you had the 3rd Battalion, the 164th. They were the only reserves that the division had. So they're back in the airfield. So Puller said, look, this is the main attack. And and the division said, yeah, well, okay, this is the main attack now. We need some support. So he sent the Padre back. Of the battalion padre and he guided these guys in and he sent one men one man from each platoon to to bring these in so because of the they're basically um coming in at night they dropped one army guy in with a the marine they said this is the only way we can do it just drop them in so they, they you know and the army had to at that stage m1 garands So the marine had the old boat action rifles even though the marines had a machine gun, but they said once you drop those army guys in there they started fighting they said you could really hear the um the intensity of the, the gunfire go up. I guess that was one. You got more guys in there. And two, you got the M1 grands.
0: Yeah, it's so a classic really, really, sound.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah. They really helped the Marines out. I mean, you can go there to this day and find the um, the stripper clips from the L3 Springfields, and you can find the um the Grand clips all together, all mingled in. It's quite amazing to, to see that, you know, the evidence of, of that that action. So they, they stopped the Japanese uh, that night. And they reconsolidated the line. So the 1st Battalion, 7 Marines moved up on Bloody Ridge, and the, the 164th then moved, took over their positions. And then the next night, the Japanese attacked more in and force. And, and their main concentration then was a place called Coffin Corner. If you go to one of my videos, Coffin Corner, and you could see. And it was a jeep trail into a large open field, and the field was about 2,000 yards long, about three or 400 yards, or about 200 yards wide. And the marine or the Marines and the Army had that would cross crisscross barbed wire and they had all the bunkers and, and I've got some good photos that showed of what it looked like at the time. And the Japanese were all concentrating on one Jeep trail and that Jeep trail went straight to the fighter one, which led on to Henderson field. So they we were concentrating there. And then once again, the army and the Marines just, just basically stacked them up and it was called coffin corner. Cause one of the Marine veterans said, if I was a coffin maker, I'd, I'd be a millionaire. I'd be a millionaire here. So, um, so the Japanese attacked that night. They had a limited penetration. I think the regimental commander, the 16th Regiment, a colonel, he, he made it through with his f- color guard group, they called it, and they were pinned down in the area. And I've actually located the area. It took me a while, but I located the area. We actually found some um, evidence too on the ground. It, it's substantiated that in relation to some other evidence from the maps and unit reports. But yeah, and the next day, the Marines ended up wiping those guys out too. But. Um, There was one general and two colonels that died in that attack. And I still say, I haven't found any evidence to suggest otherwise, but that attack, I think, at Coffin Corner, was the last Japanese offensive attack in the Pacific War, not counting China, Burma, India, because you got to remember, Japanese did bonsai attacks in other campaigns, but that wasn't like a... Offensive attack, so to speak. The Japanese on Guadalcanal was on the offensive at this stage. They're, you know, their Marines are on an army on the defensive, Japanese are on the offensive. So it was the last concentrated offensive attack. And it was the largest um, Japanese attack on the island, too. So at Coffin Corner alone, um, they end up killing anywhere between uh, 1,500, 2,000 Japanese along that line. They end up killing them. Um, so that was. Stopped the Japanese in its tracks, and those those Japanese then had to retreat back down the Muriyama Road. You know, and they were out of food by the time they even reached the the front line, so they had to retreat back down it. Um, so that ended the the last Japanese major assault of the campaign um, uh, on at the Battle of Henderson Field. Um, that leads us up. That leads us up to to November. So. This is all done and dusted on a 20. 20- and once again, the Battle of Santa Cruz Island, which is a big naval battle. So the, the Japanese did lure the Americans out, so to speak, and they fought a major um, carrier battle.
0: Yeah, I guess but, for know. the audience, just to explain, this is simultaneously happen- happening. It's a little hard to describe, but there's this entire naval engagement that's an extraordinary naval battle that's occurring with uh, the carriers Enterprise, Hornet versus the Shokaku, Zukaku, and uh, the light. Aircraft carrier, uh not as popular. I think it was the Zoehu. <laughs> yeah. a yeah, major battle. And at the same time, um, on the
1: Sunday, on the 25th, the Marines called it Dugout Sunday because the Japanese is uh, a major, major aerial assault. You know, he had the, the land based bombers and he had the, the carrier based planes, and they were smashing Henderson Field. I forgot, like almost 180 to 100, something like that. You know, they were just smashing them. And the Marines called it Dugout Sunday because most of them stayed in the dugout that day, so that was you know not to come out because
0: It's get really a, it's At this point, where you're really starting to talk about the unsung heroes, the guys repairing that airfield. <laughs> My God,
1: CB's. Yeah,
0: can't, CB's. Can't the
1: CB, CB's. You know, they were the unsung hero of the whole Pacific War. CB's. Yep. It's amazing what they did. Um, well, like I said, we could go down many rabbit holes here, but I'll try to stay on track. So, so that ended then ended last uh, end of October, 27, 28. So the Marines knew that they'd want a good victory and, and the Japanese were on the Hill. So the best time to make a counterattack is now, you know? So Vandegrift said, look, once and for all, I'm going to wipe these guys off the Metanical Cause they're, you know, they've just been beaten heavily. So, I'm, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to push them back. So on the 1st of November, he took the 5th Marines and, um, some of the 2nd Marine Regiment had come over from Tulagi this time, so we were gonna use them. So the 5th Marines were gonna push, push past um, the Matanikau to, to Point Cruz. And then once they reached the Point Cruz area, the 2nd Marine Regiment was gonna push past them all the way to Kukumbona, then destroy the 17th Army Headquarters and push the Japanese out once and for all. So the attack started quite well. On the 1st of November, the Marine engineers put down three footbridges so they didn't have to use the old log bridge or coconut log bridge anymore. It's probably probably fill in by this time because you know you'd have thousands of guys over it. But they put three uh, engineer bridges down and they crossed. The attack was going quite well, but then the uh, first battalion's fifth marines hit an area on the base of Point Cruz. and um yeah, they got hit pretty hard. And I researched the area quite well because there's still about 23, 24 Marines unaccounted for from that battalion. It was buried on the battlefield and you know, when I when I worked there, my office was basically in the area where all this happened. So I used to think about those guys every day. Um, it's, and, and to this day, there's still you know a lot of remains being found because after the war or after the fighting was over, Guadalcanal became a major logistical and training base. So the battlefield was basically you know bulldozed very really quickly and concrete slabbed right over to bay- mega base. So a lot of these um, um I guess Bodies were still left there, remains. Most of them Japanese, but there's been, you know, after the war, they sent teams to try to find them, but they still unaccounted not accounted for quite a number of. Them. But um, anyway, the Marines got hit pretty hard, and they, they got stopped, and then they sent more reinforcements up, and they basically um, trapped the Japanese in a pocket and ended up, I think, mean, killing about 350 to 400 Japanese in a pocket. And the second Marines regiment pushed past them and um, all the way, almost to Kukumbona, place called White River. And the attack was going quite well, but the, once again, the Marines received information that the Japanese were making a major landing at Coley Point. Now, Coley Point is to the east of Henderson. Now, you got to remember, Matanical is to the west, which if I had a map, I'd show you. But they, So they okay, we're getting hit, hit potentially on our flank. You know, we, we need to stop this attack and bring the guys back. <clears throat> and if you remember that 230th, Regiment, I, I was saying it was involved in Valley Henderson Field. It went, went parallel and didn't get into the attack. But what they did, they just kept going to the east, and they ended up at Coley Point. So they were, you know, there was at least about 3,000 of those guys there, 4,000. And then they thought they were landing reinforcements, but they, the Japanese did land reinforcements, landed about 300 or 400 Japanese. So they formed up with this regiment. So you still had a major force to their east. So what they did, they stopped their attack, pulled the guys back, and the poor 7th Marines, you know, who were given a bit of a break, they didn't get much of a break. Again, they sent them out to deal with them. So they, had, they took the 7th Marines and some of the 164th, and they um, went after the Japanese um, under General Rupertus. They brought him. He was the uh, assistant division commander. So he was in that operation. And anyway, um, they tried to trap the Japanese, but, you know, especially some of the, the fresh ar- Army units didn't close the gap quick enough. And most of the Japanese escaped. Now <clears throat> the swamp at Gavava Creek, they end up pinning about 450 Japanese or 500, and then end up killing them. And um, this is the only place where the, the Marine I mentioned, Chesty Puller, was wounded in 38 years of combat. Is the only place he ever wounded. So I just I did a video not too long ago on that, on the wounding of Puller, and it, it covers that area. Not too many people I know even go to that area, not even aware of it. Some of the guys who've been, you know, tour guides have been leading groups at Guadalcanal for years, have never been there. So um, there's, a, there's a, a local chief called um, – what is his name? Chief, not Chief Willie. Chief Joseph. Anyway, um, his name escapes me. I think it's Joseph. Anyway, he's uh, he, he actually lives in that area where the Amtrak's are. If you go to visit, there's an Amtrak part from the 3rd Marine Division. There, there was part of their training camp after the after the campaign, you know, because, once again, they they trained there in the 3rd Marine Division. In fact, the U.S. – the 6th Marine Division was actually born on Guadalcanal in 1944, but anyway, there's Amtrak parts there. They left all their amphibious tractors there, and it's a good place a lot of people go visit. We speak to Chief Joseph. A lot of these guys, if you ever go visit the Amtrak parts, you know, he's got a big pit there. It's called the Japanese are buried in it, and then to this day, and it's right, his hut's right there in front of it. To this day, he refuses the Japanese government from digging them up and um, cremating the bones because his grandfather was um, Jacob Vuza, who was the most famous Guadalcanal, most uh, very famous um, scout for the Americans. Um, you know, um, if you ever read about Guadalcanal campaign, you know about Vuza, but Vuza was his grandfather. And Vuza basically told him, he says, Leave those Japanese there. He says, Never, never, you know, they're not worth it. And he says, Any Americans? Yeah dig them up and give them back. The Japanese can stay there. But, you know, once again, that's, that was in the times. And if you ever, ever read what the Japanese soldiers did to, to Jacob Luz, you'd probably understand his his way of thinking, but he's, you know, going to his grandfather's wishes. But once again, they, he kind of looked after them. They're all in the same area. So no one disturbed them. So I guess you could look at it that way, but, um, so Balakoli point, they escaped out. and And when they escaped the, you know, um, a few thousand, a couple of thousand, I think, escaped. I don't know the exact number off the top of my head. All, all this has come off the top of my head. <clears throat> uh, the 2nd Marine Raiders under Carlson had landed at Aeola, which is down further in the East Coast. And they came up at the time, and this is the famous, especially in Special Operations history, <clears throat> this is long as, known as the uh, long patrol, the 30-day long patrol by the 2nd Raiders, so what they were tasked to do the Japanese were moving back around Mount Austin to join their, their, their group around Matanikau, so Edson was given a task to, to follow these guys and harass them. You know, good guerrilla techniques that these guys are trained for the, to do. So they did for thirty days. They harassed this group and <clears throat> they ended up killing quite a number of them. Um, but saying that a lot of no, a lot of them were like dying by the roadside or in hospitals and things like that from disease and, and um, starvation. But ended up, yeah, you know, like
0: I'd about, say, killing
1: about, what, five or six hundred? I think the raiders did. They they basically decimated them. What was left of them, losing about sixteen raiders. But that was known as the lone patrol, very famous patrol, and then on special operations history with the raiders.
0: So yeah. I think like eight hundred survivors of the Japanese ended up getting out. Rest were, they had starved and gone through the ringer with disease and everything. It was a rough yeah. time.
1: Yeah, I mean, you read what the Japanese did. Well, you know, Marines, Marines at the first the campaign said, look, you know, I think one of them said, look, we're not eating much, but we're not starving. The Japanese are starving. They're starving. We're not starving. We're not eating much, you know, but they're definitely, they really are starving because, you know, they were. Um, but I think the Japanese, it was, well, the counts differ, but I do we never get an accurate count, but over 20,000 Japanese died on land there. 9,000 died from combat, roughly, and so the rest of them died from starvation and disease, just to put it in perspective.
0: Yeah, I I think, if I remember correctly, because I was writing a little piece on this, there was a veteran of Guadalcanal from Japan. I I think his name was Sadio Suzuki, and he was the guy who kind of came up with the name Death Island by Starvation.
1: Yeah, yeah, Starvation Island, they call it yeah, Starvation it. Island, Death Island, Island of Death. The the locals at the time called it the Big Death. That's what they known as the the, the battles between the, the Americans and the Japanese. They called it the Big Death. That's the time they refer to as War too, the Big Death. Yeah, crazy. Um. All right, so it takes us up to mid-November now. Some Kali points over with. So Vandegrift says, "Look, I'm going to give it one last shot. You know, we'll continue our offensive in November." So they recommenced their mid-November their offensive, and um, they started fighting, fighting, fighting. They got in – you can remember by this time, the 1st Marine Division was spent, you know, from their own malaria and and diseases and just being there for three to almost four months. You know, they they didn't have much um, offensive spirit left, so to speak. (laughs) Excuse me. So – the Army, the Army started bringing more units in to, to, to reinforce Marines, so they brought another um, regiment in, uh, the Marikawa Division, um, to, to assist. So they used some of those guys. And then they got up to Point Cruise Line, and they um, suffered a bit of a setback. And the Japanese had dug in, and the U.S. dug in. <clears throat> so from late November all the way to, I'd say, January, that Point Cruise Line became the front line. And a lot of guys, or a lot of people who read about the Guadalcanal campaign don't even realize this. You know, the most intensive fighting in the Guadalcanal campaign happened around the Matanacal and the Point Cruz area. You know, people tend to think Bloody Ridge and Alligator Creek. and But no, the most intensive fighting was around that area. Yeah, from, and Point Cruz.
0: honestly, from a lot of the limited readings, it's, uh, it's almost as if after Bloody Ridge, they summarize most of the other actions <laughs> that happen after.
1: Yeah, it was a lot of action happening. Yeah. Um, so we almost almost there to the army's major involvement. Um. So they they were stuck there late November, starting to be early December. So the Marines started um, moving out, and the armies mainly started coming in. And so around um early December, the first of the Marines started moving out. Of the first Marine Division by the end of December, all the first Marine Division had uh, left for um for R and R, so to speak in Australia, you know, and you know, there's those poor guys and 80% of the division had the malaria and we were so decimated. So it took them almost a whole year to get, get back so they could carry another operation. So they left a well-deserved rest. <clears throat> and the elements, uh, more elements of the 2nd Marine Division, because uh, many didn't even know the 2nd Marine Division was actually on Guadalcanal, but they were in, by January, they were on Guadalcanal in, in, in entirety. Because before you had a 2nd Marine Regiment was there, they didn't get to leave in December with the rest of them, so they had to stay the whole, whole course. But then 6th Marine Regiment and the 8th Marine Regiment um, had came in, and so they started coming in too. And, and then our U.S. Army, they started getting the rest of the Mar-Cow Division, um, and they started bringing the 25th Infantry Division. These are guys that were stationed at um, Hawaii around Schofield Barracks on Pearl Harbor. So, you know, they were the regular, so to speak, the regular units, even though they did have a, a National Guard. Regiment, but they was the regulars with the 27th and the um, I'll say it, 35th Regiment. Um, so they were landed, and, and Vandegrift turned over to command to a guy called um, Patch, Alexander Patch, Major General. So he's U.S. Army. So he was the division commander, but then he was elevated to – they formed a corps then. It's the 14th Corps. So they formed the 14th Corps, which had the, um, the Americal Division, the um, 25th Division, and the um, 2nd Marine Division. So, what Patch decided to do, he says, Look, we're going to go on the offensive. He was giving orders to, to destroy these Japanese once and for all. So, the Japanese, oh, I'll backtrack a bit. In mid November, they were going to do another, they were going to re- replicate the attack they did in October. They had the rest of the 38th Division, they were going to land them, they're going to do the same thing. They're going to take the battleships, they're going to like blast Henderson Field, they're going to unload all the heavy artillery, and then they were going to do another attack. Yeah, so,
0: this time they're bringing the Hailaway and the Kirishima. It's, uh... This is the naval yes, battle of Guadalcanal. Exactly.
1: So the, the the middle the mid naval battles of Guadalcanal there it fought you know I think what thirteenth to the seventeenth something like that, you know that's when you had a battleship on battleship action and it's just amazing the the, the naval battles around Guadalcanal the most intense probably anywhere in a war of surface fleet action you know to that extent especially for the U.S. Navy. Um, but yeah, that's that's another another sidetrack and that was some major a massive battle, you know then you know especially that Naval Battle bio- and and on that, i got, I'll tell you which video it is. It's called the Naval Battle of Guadalcanal and the American Monument. So you stand there and I'm, I'm showing them a video between one point and another point, you know, you have 30 ships meeting at night, at, 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 all in a line. And it was, you know, that was the one where it was equated to like a, a ballroom brawl where the lights turned out. Oh my God! Yeah, other, two hundred <laughs> yard
0: machine guns. Yeah, machine guns. Searchlights yeah. come on. People are shooting. Even the Americans are friendly. Fires going on. It was, a, a oh, yeah, yeah. You know,
1: you've you got destroyers on these battleships. You know, they can't depress their guns enough. It's just, really amazing if you read it. But anyway, um, anyway, they stopped them, and so the Japanese basically went on the defensive then. But they went on the defensive, ready to go back on the offensive again. They, they, they had that whole offensive, you know, frame of mind. <clears throat> so what they had done. In Mount Austin, you know, it was the the bloody or the um, grassy knoll. Uh, it overlooks to this day. You know, it looks the same as it did. It overlooks Henderson Field, and it's always Marines always knew they'd be on an observation, but they didn't have enough guys really to take it out. It's kind of live and let live. But but Alexander Patch said, "Look, we want to take." The, we knew there was some Japanese. He thought there's maybe like a company of Japanese demoralized up there, and he said, "I'll send a battalion." <clears throat> one of my fresh units to, to take them out. And at the same time, there were some Japanese infiltrating off Mount Austin and, and going in Henderson field and doing nighttime raids. So he said, we'll end this. He says, I want to I push down the, the West Coast, but I always have these guys on my flank. So I want to take out my flank to allow me to push down the West Coast. So what he did, he sent the 132nd uh, Battalion, the 132nd uh, Regiment, which is a National Guard unit. He sent them up um, just to take care of them, just to say, look, you know, go up and, t- and eliminate that threat. So they advanced up and they got hit pretty hard with machine gun fire. And they go, oh, these guys are not demoralized. And then they lost a battalion commander, Lieutenant Colonel Wright, which to this day, there's a road up there called the Wright Road. And at that stage, it was just a jeep trail. And it ended and it became a, just a, a trail. What the Japanese had done, it had almost a regiment dug in, or two battalions dug in. And they had a, a horseshoe-shaped line with about 45 coconut um, pillboxes. It was a horseshoe shape, and to the west was the Matanakau River. It was a straight cliff, so the Americans really couldn't penetrate that line. So the Americans sent an, they, another battalion up, and they kept trying to flank it, and they kept getting hit. Because if you go there, the Japanese, it's very thick jungle, and they had well, well-camouflaged bunkers. And the reports that the, um, the soldiers were only getting, you know, 10- five, 10 feet from these bunkers, not even seeing them. They're opening up, up on them. It's very scary. So anyway, they, they couldn't flank them. So they dug in too. So most of December they were dug in, they were just facing each other taking casualties and uh, the rest of the 25th division landed. So the U S army said, okay, the 10th, the 10th of January will be our main offensive. So on the 10th of January, the are going second Marine division was going to attack down the coast. Um, they'd, The 25th Division took over. The 25th Division um, was gonna take um, Mount Austin, and it was called the Gifu, by the way. I forgot to mention that. Uh, The Japanese named it the Gifu. That was uh, named after a a local area where most of these soldiers came from, the Gifu. And they were gonna isolate the Gifu, and they had to isolate the Gifu. There was a number of ridges um, to the uh, west of the Gifu and uh, across from the Tanakao. And if you ever see the movies, There was an old one and a new one called The Thin Red Line and read the book, The Thin Red Line. You know, even though it's a fictional account, it's based uh, on this account of these attacks by the 25th on these ridges to isolate. Um, So I've got a good video and and that area is called The Thin Red Line. It's the galloping horse. So if if you look at a topographical map, you turn it upside down. It looks like a horse galloping to this day, you know, from the coral ridges open ridges in the jungles, and um nearby is a seahorse looks like a seahorse so they were getting a task isolating and destroying the japanese who were dug in those hills and even the movie the thin red line the modern one with you know with, with tom cruise and, and uh, nick nolte and, and cusack and the rest of them um the terrain looks quite very similar how it looks in reality um you see my video it's probably it is the most perfectly observed battlefield on to canal Cause it's just hard to get to, isolated. Um, they did film in that movie. They did film parts of the Guadalcanal. Most of it was filmed in northern Northern um, Queensland in Australia. But there's a part of the movie in the very beginning. I think they're walking up a slope. You can see Mount or Savo Island in the background. So that was that was filmed on the Guadalcanal. And some of the um, singing in the movie. It's just a long movie, so I'm, like I, said, I won't get into what I actually think of the movie. But the combat scenes are pretty good, and it, especially when it depicts John Cusack um, taking those bunkers. That's loosely uh, based on a fellow named Captain um, Charles Davis who actually earned a Medal of Honor up up top there. So, and uh, my video talked about that and it's quite amazing. There's one, I think I was telling this story before, there's one point part there that I think is super amazing. When I was researching it and I was up on the battlefield and I found the the two big bunker holes that the Japanese pillboxes that they took out was on the reverse slope. And I knew that, that um, Davis and um, four other guys had crawled up within, within 10 yards and they were supposed to distract the Japanese and then a battalion commander with a, the company was gonna come over to a coral edge and attack. And when, when he distracted, he was gonna blow a whistle. So what happened was before they did that, they got within 10 yards and you know I'm crawling, I'm, I'm doing the same thing. I'm crawling, I'm going, oh, this is where he would have been. Okay, I can see where the bunkers are. And then I knew that the Japanese threw some grenades at them. it didn't explode but so davis and his other army guys the soldiers threw their grenades and it exploded exploded and they jumped up davis led a charge with his grand, and i think it went had a stoppage on his grand and he transitioned to his pistol i think or maybe vice versa but anyway i'm 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 looking at go okay they were here they did this they did this and i'm looking down on the Carl, and there's pull pins from hand grenades all scattered around me and i thought this is, this can't be, but then I started thinking, hold on a minute. This battle was never fought over anyway. This is the only time this place was ever fought on what no one trained on this area. It has to be these guys pull pins and their grenades. Just amazing that, you know, potentially it was the, from a medal of honor action that just, just sitting on top of the ground. Just crazy because it doesn't go down the ground. It's all Carl. Um, so yeah. So they end up taking, taking that, and they took the seahorse, and so they isolated the Gifu. And they knew by isolating the Gifu, the Japanese couldn't get supplies from that, that, that flank. <clears throat> so I think in the next day or day after, the rest of the 35th, um, after a, a major bombardment, attacked the, um, the Japanese bunkers on the Gifu. And they had three tanks, Marine tanks, that they'd borrowed, and they had, uh, or Marines probably left, had Army drivers. And they only got one tank in position, but that one tank was enough to take out the, the bunkers. Because you gotta remember, this is before the days of um, flamethrowers and it, those, those Army National Guard guys only had hand grenades and rifles and bayonets to take out these bunkers. So you know, it was pretty pretty hard um, work, but the, the, um, the tank kind of made the difference. So the Japanese, after the back was broken there, so to speak, they did a small bonsai charge and it was destroyed. So that basically, <clears throat> that, that threat was eliminated so and the rest of January, um, the Army and the Marines, 2nd Marine Division, um, started pushing down the coast. And they were fighting in um, isolated Japanese, but the Japanese is basically their you know, offensive spirit or defense. They were, they were basically destroyed and they didn't have much fight left in them. Um, around the last of December, I think the last day of December, the Japanese high command basically made the decision that we will evacuate Guadalcanal. Um, so, but the Japanese thought, how can we do this? And they had to have a big um, intelligence, I guess, fate for, for the Americans to try to fool the Americans by using intelligence. So what the Japanese did, they, um, they made it um, look like for the Americans to assume that the Japanese were gonna do another large offensive on Guadalcanal. Americans thought, okay, the Japanese are going to do another large offensive. They're not giving it up. So the Japanese ended up landing um, a new, a fresh battalion. They did, of troops, but they were going to be the rear guard just to provide cover for the rest of the guys to move out. So they, the, the Army and the Marines fought a series of um, small engagements, mainly on the creeks and rivers, leading to the very end of um, the north west part of um, guarda canal called cape esperance around that area and the japanese you know basically leave guys you know to die or the rear guard at each each creek or each river you know to die in place just to hold them back and um there's an operation key i think it's called Key, and over a series of nights the japanese evacuated on uh, i think nine to eleven thousand probably never find the exact numbers um yeah it's, over, uh, it's
0: almost eleven thousand it's kind of like they're dunkirk basically
1: yeah and it was like um you mentioned in that it's it's like the the gallipoli campaign in world one you know with yeah Australia exactly and, yeah. and the british you know the, the the most successful part of the campaign is evacuations you could probably say <laughs> the same here with the japanese and it's probably the only only real island they evacuated in the whole pacific you know because yeah once really again, after, honestly after, yes.
0: mm-hmm.
1: well after Guadalcanal, you know they didn't have the capacity to do it i think they, they didn't control the sea lines i, mean, I don't you think know, they
0: had the luxury
1: yeah. yeah you know they would have been sunk <clears throat> and um and mention that, you know, Guadalcanal is probably um, the only time in the Pacific War where both, both forces were on par, so to speak. They're both equal, roughly, roughly equal. I mean, in the very, very beginning of the war, Japanese had the kind of upper hand and obviously toward the end of the war, you know, the Allies basically, you know, they could dominate anywhere they wanted with the mass material and, and, and technology and firepower. But here they were, the forces were evenly matched. And in saying that, once the, once the uh, Allies defeated the Japanese in Guadalcanal, it really, really gave them a major boost. You know, they had small wins elsewhere in the Pacific, but only at Guadalcanal and and nearby Bunagana and, and Kokoda that it really said, look, we, we, um, we fought the best the Japanese have. And especially at Guadalcanal, we fought the best the Japanese had on air, sea, and land. <clears throat>
0: I think for, um, for, a, for a lot of people who are less uh, well less knowledgeable about the Pacific War, they always tend to look at, you know, and I think it's just because of the, honestly, because of the title, the Battle of Midway is almost always portrayed as this kind of turning point. But a lot of people would argue it's it's honestly, it's Guadalcanal because it's when the Japanese actually had to go on the defensive foot afterwards.
1: Yeah, well, I, I agree. I'm one of those who would say, yes, you, you're correct. Because I'm, um... You know, what's, what's a turning point? I mean, uh, I think a turning point is when the strategic initiative is a shift in the strategic initiative of a, of, a, of, a, of a war. And after Midway, you didn't see a, a, a shift in strategic initiative because the Japanese were still on the offensive.
0: Yeah, exactly. Especially in the South nose. Pacific. It's a bloody nose, but uh, the Japanese Navy was still the strongest at that point. They're still numerous, and they oh, still yeah. controlled the territories. they I mean, uh, honestly, when it came to the naval aspect of Guadalcanal, it was it was in their pockets. They had the poker chips, but they didn't have the intelligence. Uh, Station HPMO and uh, the crypto analysts—they were learning from them and breaking the codes. And that numbers didn't win out against the intelligence. The Japanese—they had the better poker hands, but the Americans knew where they were going to be.
1: Yeah, exactly. And you know, you know, Midway gave the the Allies the um, you know gave them the. Momentum, I guess you could say. You go know, before they were, boost, still,
0: yeah,
1: yeah. Just like we spoke about in the last episode, they were going to. They were, you know, Special Admiral King, the the head of the, head of the um, Chief Naval Operations. He'd already had it in his mind that you know, even though it was a Europe first, he was still pushing for take offensive in the at some yeah. point in the Pacific, and he wanted to to log in the surrounding islands, you know, and that was even before Midway. Then once Midway happened, he said, okay, now now we're going to, you know, accelerate this plan. And it's, it actually,
0: yeah. their plan. it's actually kind of funny because he was going to be going to FDR with a proposal to get more resources for the Pacific, and it was the Battle of Midway that actually shifted FDR to say yes.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, it, it actually, you know, it, it brought everything forward a bit. Yeah. So I'd, I would say Guadalcanal, in conjunction with um, the Papua New Guinea campaign, it was happening at the same time as Guadalcanal because Papua New Guinea with the, the Australians and the Americans, you know, some people don't even know the Americans there, but the 32nd yeah. Division was there. And, um, you know, when they won at Bina Ghana, which is the northern, end the, the northern part there, um, so their campaign ended in January of 43, and the Guadalcanal was February of 43. So I call it the, the one two punch between those two. You know, that shifted the strategic focus, strategic initiative, because, you know, before Guadalcanal, the Japanese had the initiative. After Guadalcanal, it was clear they didn't have the initiative. It was actually particularly- The Japanese Thai Command says that. Yep. Yeah. It
0: was, it was particularly important for the Japanese because the commanders who were in New Guinea, they were under the influence the entire time they had to do any of their strategic planning. It was under the presumption that at any single moment, Guadalcanal could fall and all the units in Guadalcanal could come over to New Guinea. So it completely affected everything they did. And when it fell, yeah, of course, it really crippled New Guinea. for It was like the nail in the coffin for both. The one Well,
1: I mean, what if, you know, you know, Port Mozu was their main objective and yeah, You know, almost 40,000, 30 to 40,000 Japanese were were put on land on Guadalcanal. You know, it's a big what if. What if, you know, they would have went to Port Moresby in New Guinea instead, which a lot of them, like the 35th Brigade was was supposed to go to New Guinea. The second was supposed to go to New Guinea, as far as I know. So, you know, you Mm -hmm. put all those. You know how that have been turned out? You know how would Australia poor, it...
0: react? The Prime Minister yeah. and Churchill weren't uh, they weren't seeing eye, to eye on a lot of things too. And you know there's there's I mean I know that uh, there's a lot of arguments to be made that Australia was never even considering suing for peace or anything. But you know yeah you, you I, never know.
1: There's a good chance Port uh, Morsey probably would have fell. You know because yeah. all the the reinforcements and supplies that Guadalcanal took you know took it away from that campaign and folk, refocused their shift because Japanese couldn't maintain. Uh, two, you know, strategic, important campaigns at the same time. So that's when they put one on hold in September after Bloody Ridge, which was the Papua New Guinea, Kokoda. And Kokoda, you know, I'm obviously not the expert on Kokoda, but, you know, I know enough to, that uh, they started bringing the regular forces over
0: because mm-hmm.
1: mm-hmm. the militia guys did a great job holding them off. But then the regular forces landed and they brought them over the 7th uh, Infantry Division and they started fighting back and it allowed them a chance to to get a bit of a fight back you know, and give them a bit of a breather to consolidate the forces to push the Japanese back over. So, yeah, it was – yeah, to me, that's – the those two campaigns are the turning point and, and, you know, but there's a whole number of turning points, you could say. It's probably not well, just course, one, yeah. one but, but I think that was when the real and the Japanese really um, uh, knew that, okay, and I think one Japanese general basically said, you know, after Guadalcanal, I knew that it was over with.
0: Yes, you know. yes. It's famous And the
1: Solomon Islands decimated, uh, you know, people talk about Midway, you know, destroyed the Japanese air, you know, it didn't destroy Japanese air crews, not that many, not that many went down. I don't think we were discussing the other day about Santa Cruz and then in October. I think more Japanese lost more air crews than Midway. I don't know. I have to double check that. But it was up to, it, like, it, it was, was a definitely a large the,
0: number. It was almost five, it was 500. Yeah, it was definitely
1: the Solomon Islands campaign that, that. Destroyed their air power. I mean,
0: and they can't replace them. Uh, the training for the the Americans could train pilots and put them out, and they had veteran pilots coming back and training other Americans. But for the Japanese, they that was a huge problem for them. They they actually mistreated their veteran pilots. Uh, it's it's interesting.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, they and, used them until they just died. But this is you know, and I think there's almost 700 Japanese planes were lost in, in the Guadalcanal campaign.
0: Yeah, you know, all the the veteran pilots who came back from Midway were were scorned for it and they were the guys who had they were still the veterans of some of them of Pearl Harbor and stuff and they, they had knowledge to bring down to the other pilots coming up and they were not allowed they were actually sporadically kind of spread out across different regions and stuff it's, a, it's really weird how the, the Japanese went about that but uh, yeah they can never rebuild what they had come into the war with
1: yeah well um, that's, that probably wraps up all I have to really say um, yeah. unless we have got any questions or something um, I've been talking for a bit and once again, Guadalcanal, you can, you could go down many rabbit holes, and, and you could do a whole series just on on Guadalcanal itself. I mean, it's you know, it's the first time in in world history, military history, that you had uh, such a large naval air and sea campaign going at the same time. You I guess know, the, I mean, you won't find many many parts of war too like that, not in this intense small area.
0: You an know, interesting way to finish crazy. this off, I, I think I would like to ask you. Since you've been on Guadalcanal for so long, what was your favorite battlefield to walk? What was the most interesting, or you know, where you felt something?
1: I'd say, um, the galloping horse, you know, the one I mentioned is probably the best preserved. Um, and if you if you look at my video, you will see that it's just it's it's just like it was there. I mean, it's just just amazing, and and it's a great study on how water or lack of water could decimate a, a, a unit you know yeah. because those guys up there um they didn't get any water supply they had one canteen of water and it's just you know when you're up there yourself and you've got to get up to that area once you even get to the battlefield you're you know you feel like you're, you're half dead because you got to go straight up this mountain and once you get up there and it's like yeah i've seen a, a number of, of you have to be if you go to guadalcanal you gotta be very acclimatized i don't know if you can actually do that most people when they get to the top of the thing they, they vomit <laughs> Just <a> natural, <laughs> really? natural reaction Well, they get the, the vomit then they continue on okay let's get some water in here let's continue on but I used and those poor guys that was it, it attacked they're only on the island for maybe two weeks and they had one bot- canteen of water and I said let's, let's attack up these ridges and you know Japanese dropping mortars and machine guns and you're sprinting and running and you know and, and at the end of the night that you know they're green troops too so the water discipline would have been off and yeah. When the night time come, they didn't get resupplied because guys couldn't get up to them. And the next morning, they had to kick off their next attack, and they had so many heat casualties already. And, you know, once they received a bit of machine gun fire, they just stopped their, their battalion and stopped its attack in its track, and as they were done for. They had to bring another battalion up, and then when they brought the second battalion up, they actually ran out of water too. It was a big thunderstorm that came through, and it gave them a little bit of um, water to quench their thirst, enough to – to um get them over the edge sort of speak and take the rest of it. But yeah, that's my favorite battlefield on. You can really study. I like going. I mean, I like Bloody Ridge too. I used to go to Bloody Ridge all the time. I used to, from work, I used to drive up, you know, I've, I calculate I've been to Bloody Ridge over 300 times. <laughs> wow. I mean, I, I, I can close my eyes and I can, you know, if I look at it, just a little bit of a picture of Bloody Ridge of a, of a, of a photo, someone says, Oh, where's this set? You know, from 1942, 43, I could probably, I'm, I'm most can pick it out quite quickly. Because I know that terrain quite well, that's um, a great battlefield to study too. Because I've, I've taken uh, when I was there, Marines, Australian, New Zealand um, Army, NCOs, and all for battlefield study um, groups, and we can we really study the uh, Battle of Bloody Ridge. It's a good one to study. Um, really but yeah, but yeah, there's, there's quite a number. But I used to go to Bloody Ridge, and it's a very peaceful place. The only place on Guadalcanal that I ever get that kind of heebie-jeebies, or you know, the hair stand out the back of your, your neck was um Coffin Corner. Um, that's the only mm. place in the thick jungle. I'm walking, I'm thinking, this doesn't feel right. There's someone around here. It just, you know, you, it just doesn't feel right. Blade Ridge is very peaceful. Coffin Corner, I mean, but once again, you know, he, the the barrel pits for the Japanese, each barrel pit, you know, held five, you know, four or 500 Japanese. There's about three big barrel pits there, you know, held 1,500 Japanese dead. And, yeah. you know, there's they've, they've been excavated in the 80s, but, you know, the barrel pits are there and, and, and you know they still find equipment and bits and pieces there all the time and you know and there's bones everywhere so yeah uh, oh you and, know and I mean. ordinance, and ordinance is a big big problem right now in the Solomon Islands it's everywhere
0: so to finish it off how about you just tell the audience again where they can find you where can they watch these amazing videos if you walk in the battlefield and giving these tours
1: yes yeah, so it's a, a youtube page it's called Guadalcanal Walking a Battlefield, and then I have a Facebook page called Guadalcanal Walking a Battlefield. And my, my Guadalcanal um, YouTube one it has a lot of videos for me actually on the battlefield, but then I've got four or five here recently because I've, I haven't been back to Guadalcanal, especially with COVID. I'm planning on hopefully going back into this year, definitely next year, and filming some more. But in the meantime, I'm, I'm just doing some small um, episodes that's um, got then and now photos and off the beaten track like the pull Puller, wounding in and a few things and my, once again my facebook page updated you know, one or two days every one or two days with, with fresh material that hopefully you've never seen before so that's it
0: so everyone please show him some love check out his videos <laughs> like and subscribe and Dave it's been an absolute pleasure
1: all right Craig thanks for for having me on mate it's, it's always oh, sorry mate that's my strain straining me buddy <laughs> Thanks for having me. And I'm, I'm eager to, to talk any, anything about Guadalcanal.
0: Absolutely. It's been the uh, Pacific war podcast week by week over and out.